0: I'm David Bushman. I go by Bush. I'm one of the teaching elders here at the church, uh, and I have opportunity to speak on occasion. My other job is I work leading Athletes in Action, which is a collegiate ministry at Princeton University working with college students. So that's sort of my world, college students, and periodically I get a chance to speak here at, at my church. Uh, but normally I'm seated where you are, uh, and so I look forward today. The The uh, series that I've been handed, I'm number five in a series of six in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is this person who was living in the 450s BC in the land of Persia. He was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, which means he's, a, as Anthony said, a food taster, a poison detector to make sure the king doesn't die and he would die instead. So this kind of expendable but important role is Nehemiah's. And all of a sudden, in the middle of all this, he becomes aware that his homeland in Jerusalem is in great distress, and so God calls him to go back from this land of Persia to his homeland and rebuild the walls, and so that's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks, how Nehemiah, God has used this person who's really kind of like a project manager, a civil engineer. He's doing an amazing work rebuilding the wall, and today our text takes a complete turn where we're not talking about an external physical wall. We're going to talk about What happens for the people as they begin to come back and they need to be rebuilt spiritually and they need to be recrafted in their own hearts as people of God. So that's kind of what we're gonna do today. We will actually be doing today in this room what is happening in the text. They will be reading a text and changing by it and we will be reading their text and hopefully being changed. So it's kind of interesting to preach about the the actual process of preaching. Um, And our hope is that these things that are happening about Nehemiah and Ezra today aren't just stories that lived four or 500 years ago, but they're stories that have resonance to things that we face, and sometimes we see ourselves in these stories, and sometimes we're reminded, ooh, that might be something for me to keep in mind. And the reason why it's called next level leadership is that presumably we're all at some level of spiritual growth, and it'd be nice to actually grow. To go to the next level up, by the way, we're not talking about next level down, we're talking about next level up. We're talking about advancing, progressing in in our spiritual lives. And so that's the hope of why we're doing this study. So we're gonna spend a good chunk of my, first half of my message in the text. You'll see them, they'll be up, you'll be able to see the text. Then we'll take a turn and we'll talk about what in the world does this mean for us in 21st century Ewing, uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey area. So let's get into the text. Before I go to Nehemiah 8, which is where we'll be if you want to look it up in your own text, you'll see him here. Uh, There's a character who gets introduced named Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are a package deal. We have not been studying Ezra, but he comes up in the story. So I want to grab three verses or four verses that talk about him from the book of Ezra, just so you know who he is. Ezra chapter 7, verse 6 reads this. Ezra, who is a descendant of Aaron, which means he's a priest, he's a religious leader. Ezra came up from Babylon. This is Ezra 7, 6, and 7. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord the God, of Israel had given them. So he's a scribe. He's a religious leader. The king, again, the king of Persia, had granted him everything he requested because the hand of the Lord, was of his God, was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, Singers, gatekeepers, temple servants accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So he's a religious leader. He brings his worship band with him. He brings his sound crew. He brings his ushers. He's headed back in the seventh year. And we know that Nehemiah comes in the 20th year. So Ezra's there for like 13 years beginning to try to get things moving spiritually for the people. But he really doesn't show up in our story till later. The other thing it says about Ezra, next verse, Ezra 7, 8. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. So he has a several-month journey since the gracious hand of God was on him. And here's the verse I really want you to notice. Now, Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, to obey it, and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel, So Ezra is a person who studies the law, puts it into practice in his own life, and then begins to teach it to other people. If you are a leader, if you are a school teacher, if you are a parent, or if you are in a position of authority, this is the order. Figure it out, begin to live it out sincerely in your own life, and then begin to instruct other people in it. It does not go this way. Just fire off anything you wanna say. If you feel like following it yourself, yeah, maybe go ahead, but you don't really have to. And hopefully, maybe somehow it'll line up with God's word. That is not the pattern for leadership. The pattern for leadership is figure out what God is saying, put it into practice, and then begin to instruct. So Ezra's an excellent leader. He happens to be a good. That's all you need to know about Ezra. Now we're gonna go to Nehemiah 8. And again, we'll move through the text. There are three Words that show up so many times, I just give you a primer to look for them. This emphasis on the book. A book is gonna be really important in our story. Emphasis on understanding and an emphasis on joy. Look for those words in our story today. They will make up my points at the end too. Nehemiah, I guess I should say, Mark left us last week in chapter four. A lot of opposition. They get the wall finished though. Between his chapter and mine, verse eight, the wall is, there's still plenty of opposition, but they get the wall finished miraculously in 52 days. So what has been down for roughly 150 years, the wall has been collapsed, it's been besieged, Jerusalem's in trouble, Ezra's back there with a small group, but they're not doing so well. But in 52 days, they're able to rebuild something that's been down for 150 years, and that's amazing. I mean, it's miraculous. And they're excited about that, but immediately Nehemiah turns to building something else in in today's experience. So this is what happens in our text. Romans, I'm sorry, Nehemiah 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. So all the people are now called to come back together on the east side of the city, which is where the water gate. It's kind of interesting that they do this just out in the city square. They don't do this near the temple. They're just doing this out in regular life areas they asked, the people asked the scribe, he's described as a scribe here, Ezra, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, which is how we're able to figure out that it's probably about five days after the temple, I mean, after the wall has been rebuilt, they do this. So this happens pretty quickly after the wall's been rebuilt. The priest, Ezra, here he's referred to as a priest. So he's a priest, he's a scribe, he's a scholar, he's a person who's involved in the religious stuff, brought the law, the same book, before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. This is such an interesting idea on the day that we're gonna be celebrating some young people being baptized. In this text, this isn't just for men. This is for women. This is for children, boys and girls, who have understanding, who are old enough to understand. They're all part of this experience in this story. Verse three, while he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it the book, Once again, this book, from daybreak till noon, before the men, women, and all those, the children children who could understand. So this is like a five or six hour sermon series here. No fear, that's not happening today. But this is what happens in this story, unbelievably long. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. And then it lists several other priests that are up there with him. I didn't put their names on your screen. Uh, story continues. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. So there's a platform built. He's up on this platform. He opens the scroll, the book of the law of Moses, and now they're going to have their service. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Boom. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their Hands uplifted, all the people said, amen, amen. Then they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So this is quite a reception for the book of the law. I mean, this is, he stands up to read and the people are like, yes, please read it to us. And they're excited about receiving this whole thing. Next verse, they list another 13 Levites who are involved. And it says that the Levites explained or interpreted the law of Moses to the people as they stood in their places. So they're standing in their places with these Levites doing this for hours on end. They read from the book of the law of God, translating and giving meaning to the people so that they could understand. The point is that people would understand what was read in this particular text. By the way, it is from this verse that later rabbis deduced and said that anytime time the Torah is read, the congregation is to stand. So if you've ever been a part of service, sometimes Christian services do this too, where out of respect for the book, they'll stand. Have you ever done that? We've done that on occasions, Our life makes sense. But in this place, they all did it. This, it comes from this verse, that's where it comes from. Back to my story. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the word of the law. I think as they heard the word of the covenant and all that was expected of them, all that their forefathers and foremothers had agreed to, they realized, oh my gosh, we have been so unfaithful. We are in dire, we have, we're not even close to doing this. We are in trouble. And they naturally like, oh my gosh, our hearts are broken over this. But surprisingly, Ezra tells them, no, this isn't a day for weeping. It's true, God is holy and we're way off course, but this isn't a day for weeping. And the text continues. Then Nehemiah, or he, said to them, Go and eat that which is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared. Include everybody in this celebration, since today is holy to the Lord. Again, do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's that joy. We'll, we'll come back to that. Verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 11. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Do not grieve, that's three times, do not grieve. Ezra says it, Nehemiah says it, and the Levites say it. Don't grieve, this is, a diff- this is a celebration day. So verse 12, then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. So this is quite a teaching session, it goes on all morning, you got people standing up, opening the book, reading on the platform, there's others there out circulating among the audience, explaining to them what it seems to mean. And then after this day is over, the next day happens. Nehemiah 8:13. On the second day, the next day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the, they're still studying. They are so interested in this book. It's beautiful to see. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded that through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters or tents or booths, some of your translations might say, during the festival of the seventh month. Quick explanation, there was a a festival in Exodus 23 that talked about at the beginning of the harvest, we're gonna have this, we dwell in tents and we're going to celebrate the beginning of the harvest. Later it took on in Leviticus 23, another meaning where because the people in the wilderness lived in tents, they would live in tents when they do this. So they're celebrating the fact that God had provided for them in the wilderness in tents and that God had given them some food. That's the celebration. Story continues. Nehemiah 8.15, so they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the hill country, bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy branches to make shelters, just as it is written. The people went out, brought back branches and made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate, and the square by the Ephraim gate. And we're almost done with our text, but this is quite a spectacle now. I mean, we've got people putting tents up in their rooftops, in the courtyards, between their homes, out in the city square. I mean, there's like, tent, this is, I mean, the Homeowners Association I'm taking, it does not like this particular development, but this is quite, I mean, everyone knows what's going on. This is quite an ordeal that's very noticeable. The children understand, oh, this is important to the parent. Look at us, we're all doing something here. And then the final part of our text, verse 17, the whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua until that day. And there was tremendous joy. Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. So that first day was a special day. and Then we have seven days to live in tents while they're reading it. And they celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was an assembly according to the ordinance, to the ordinance. So that's the extent of my text, that's the whole story that I just wanted you to be brought into. They are remembering the first exodus with Moses and in many ways they're kind of celebrating with Ezra and Nehemiah like a second exodus because they're like coming back to the land and this is an exciting time. Now historically, the Israelite people had put way too much trust in their kings, in their military power, in their political establishments And they had just got swept up into just being like a nation too much rather than the people of God. And that all came crashing down when Jerusalem fell and they were sent into exile. They are nothing now. They are a small little group of people in one dinky little province of a massive Persian empire. And God begins to call them back together to be people of the covenant and of the book. So it's more like they're coming back to the days of Abraham and the days of Moses when they're like, people who follow God's law and God's covenant rather than having political power, military might, and because they don't have any of that now. And honestly, this is a big deal to us because that's how the New Testament's gonna come in. The New Testament will come in and introduce a church which isn't about political power, isn't about military might, isn't about geographical location, but it's about spiritual criteria. So this is actually a pretty significant movement in the history of God to, to do that. That's your whole story. That's, that's what happens in here. And I just wanted to you know, draw a few lessons from this for us. We've been using the next level leaders moniker. So my first point is next level leaders take God's word seriously together. Now, this was quite a deal. I mean, this was a royal reception. The people are standing up. They're begging to be taught. They are there for hours on end. I mean, this is an amazing thing that's going on here. Now, I speak periodically like today. And when I speak, a lot of times people will ask me, so how did you do? which is always a weird question. I don't totally know. I mean, I think I said what I was trying to say, but I don't know. But I've noticed, and most of the time, I'm seated where you are, I'm a recipient, I'm in the congregation. When I leave, no one ever asks me, so how did you do as a listener? Which is fair. I need feedback as a speaker. I need to, I'm held accountable for what I say here. My motives are even gonna be judged by God. But it is also true that in order for communication to happen, there's a speaker, there's a message and a medium, and there are recipients. And if the recipients, the congregation, the listeners do not have open hearts and receptiveness, there is no communication that's gonna happen, friends. So this isn't just about how does the speaker do, it's how do we do as listeners? I hope you think about that. I think it's good to be reminded of that sometimes. Did I give it my best? Did I try to squeeze every little bit out of that sorry sermon I just heard, but I got something out of it. You know, are you doing your part to try to listen well within that? In this text, they are. Now, you can hear God in your car, in a bar, at the shore, fishing, in a hospital. God can show up in most unbelievable places, even if you're not looking for God. It's possible that you'll see a sunset and it just causes you to think about the wonder of creation. But that's different than when you hear the specific message of Jesus preached. There's a general revelation. The world's amazing. Flowers, dandelions and butterflies. I mean, it's just awesome some of the things you see. There's a sense of conscience in us that there's something bigger than we are. And that's true for all people. That's general revelation to everybody. But this is a specific thing where they're preaching out of the book of the law and the covenant. We would add to that the prophets and the Jesus and the gospels. It's different because that book, that law, makes demands on you in a way that a sunset never does. You just need to remember that, that we need to hear it preached, and we need to hear it preached together. Praise God for technology. We can include people in this service who aren't here They're shut in, they're sick, they're traveling. Praise God we can do that. But there is something special about actually being together with the people you're hearing the message. That's what happened on this day. That's one thought. Second thought, next level leaders strive to interpret God's word accurately and apply it to today. You know, over and over it said they understood. They were trying to get people to understand. The people understood. And that was the whole point of it. That was a great thing in there. Paul would later come on and say, I planted, a guy named Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. In our story, it would be Nehemiah helped galvanize the people to build the wall, Ezra helped point people to the book of the law, and God caused the growth. This happens over and over. You have all kinds of external projects going on in your life, I do, home repairs, life things, work stuff, and yet in the middle of all that, we wanna hear God's voice, and so, It's it's just kind of a strange thing. I mean, so in our text, they hear that, wait, we have not been faithful to this law and we haven't been doing this festival. We need to do this festival of the booths, of the shelters, so they do it. I can't stand up here and say, we need to all go out and camp out in tents. That's not gonna be helpful to you. I can't go out and say, hey, we gotta have five to six hour services. That's not gonna be helpful to you. I can't grab from this text and say, hey, Nehemiah built a wall, so we should all build fences around our, that's not the point. But the point does seem to be that they took God's covenantal law seriously. And that we do wanna take seriously. And it's possible. In this text it happens, and it's happened repeatedly. I'll show you a few other places where it's happened. In this text, something happens in these people's hearts. That means that an imperfect speaker who is flawed and makes mistakes can flap his little lips and hopefully interpret God's words accurately It goes out and lands on imperfect, flawed listeners. (laughs) And you can possibly hear that and receive something. And in the middle of all that, we'll say, God spoke to me. What? From him with that message and you, what? And yet it's true. It's unbelievable how God uses his word. And if we're anchored into it by, because it's powerful, not because of us, because it's powerful and the work of his spirit, he can actually communicate through this process of preaching. It is remarkable what can occur. So I thought I'd give you a few metaphors of the word of God and then give you a few illustrations. Uh, one of the metaphors of the word of God is that it's like food. So here's a picture of food. Jesus, when he's tempted, says by the devil, turn the, do a crazy miracle just for yourself. Do a crazy miracle, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, no, 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 it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds. So the word of God can be food for our soul. One image. Second image, that it can be a light for our path. Psalm 119 says, "Your your word, your law, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It can guide me and it can show me which direction to go. One of the reasons why it's so important that we memorize some scriptures and learn some things. One of the reasons why Awana and children are memorizing verses. I heard Reggie yesterday at the men's breakfast talk about the importance of him trying to learn a verse a week. I'm working on the 46th Psalm. I've heard Jim Perkins up here recite scriptures that she's learned. Praise God for that. There's some value in learning these things so that you can use them with others and have them available in your life when you need them. Another image of a scalpel. Now this is a different one. (laughs) Uh, This is uh, Hebrews 4.12, it says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It can even judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it can cut away the, it can get deep in our lives and show us things that we need to understand and know. This is different than the word of God being a sword that Mark talked about last week, where the sword is like to fend off the enemy or to stand strong against lies. That's not what it, that's not my text. My text has to do with the people being confronted with the word of God, and they realize there's a problem in themselves. So God's doing surgery on them to change their hearts. That's another image. And the fourth image is that of a seed that's planted that begins to grow. And this one, Jesus says, a farmer went out to plant some seed. Some of it fell on hard ground, path. Some of it fell on rocky ground. Some of it fell on thorns and got choked out. Some of it was good soil. And then he concludes by saying, she who has ears to hear, let her hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so that's another one of the pictures. All right, there you go. Now tell me, let's put all four of the pictures up and I want you to see which you think this is. This is Luke 24. Jesus is walking on the road, the two people on the road to Emmaus. He's walking on the road. They don't realize it's him they're frustrated because everything fell apart. They, he, had, he had died, and they're getting the reports, but they can't make sense of this. And this is what they say. Uh, they're like, someone had told us that the women had told us he's right, but we saw him die. And he, Jesus says, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all the things that the people prophets have spoken. Wasn't... The, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer all these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, which would be our book of the law, and all the prophets, he, Jesus, although they didn't know it was Jesus, interpreted for them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So he walks them through the scriptures and show how he's the fulfillment of all this. Then he goes on and eats with them, and all of a sudden their eyes are opened as he breaks bread, and then they say to each other this line. Listen to this line. Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? So somehow this was food for their soul. This was a light that was starting to come on in their eyes. About Wait a minute, wait wait a minute, did he really have to die? And he really is the Messiah, oh my goodness. This is soil that's starting to grow. Okay, Acts chapter two reads this way. By this time, Jesus has gone back to heaven. The Holy Spirit has just descended. Peter preaches this amazing message on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, and this is how it concludes. He said, and this is the Jesus whom you crucified. He was both Lord and Messiah. And the text, Acts says, 2.37 says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And he says, you need to repent for forgiveness in the name of Christ and be baptized. Repent, turn to Christ, and be baptized. Very appropriate for what we're gonna be doing today. So this is the scalpel, right? They're hearing the word priest, and all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, we gotta do something. Jesus is great, and we are in trouble without his, we need, we need Jesus, what do we do? Pierce to the heart. Four verses later, Acts two forty two. it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching as the people were being added to them and to the fellowship, and to prayer, and the breaking of bread. So this early group devotes themselves to this spiritual food. They devote themselves to this teaching. This is a major part of who they are. One last one, Acts 17. Paul has been kicked out of Thessalonica. They weren't receptive there. They were, uh, I guess we could say, rocky soil, hard soil. He gets chased out. And this is what it says about the next town he goes to of Berea. The Berean people were of more noble character than those in Thessalonians since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. So they look at this text and are like, wow, is this really true? Let me compare this with, they're pulling out their books, and is this what he's saying true? And the result is, consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men, So God, through the preaching of his word, makes this amazing penetration into Europe through this thing, through the preaching of his word. This has happened over and over and over again, friends, throughout scripture. It is powerful when received right and preached right. One final thought, and in some ways this is my trickiest one. It's the best verse in there, but you gotta be careful with it. Next level leaders, for them, the joy of the Lord is their strength. I wanna be careful here. Because we don't want to be superficial about saying we don't notice the problems and trauma in this world. We don't want to say that there's no place for lament or crying out out of desperation because that's clearly true in the Psalms. But our text does push us to consider the joy of the Lord. The very next text, Nehemiah 9, is a whole chapter of confessing of their sins, their lament. So clearly lament and confession of sin is an important part of the. Christian tradition, so is the ninth chapter of Ezra, so is the ninth chapter of Daniel. Daniel. We cannot look at the stuff in this world and not be sort of heartbroken by some of the things. Some of the stuff that's going on in Turkey and the earthquake there in Syria, some of the crises in Ukraine, some of the traumas that we face related to uh, racial inequities, related to violence. I mean, you can't look at that and have your heart not be broken. And I used to think that when the scripture said rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, I was usually just doing one or the other. Oh, great, this is a rejoice day. Wonderful, this is a rejoice day. Oh, whoa, this is a weep day, we're gonna weep. But honestly, I found it happens together, doesn't it? You're here in worship and there's things that cause you to weep about this, where you lament those things about the world. That's normal. It's one of the reasons why I have prayer time. I have people pop into my head sometimes and my heart just breaks for the stuff they're going through. I mean, I just wanna cry out, I'm weeping with them while at the same time I'm worshiping a God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow and you're rejoicing and it's just a fascinating thing, isn't it, to hold this together? Because the joy of the Lord really is our strength because it's ultimately in the gospel that we derive hope. They didn't know of Jesus yet at this point but it becomes really clear soon that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things and so you can rejoice in the salvation of Jesus even when some things are going wacky in your world. And that Jesus has done something on our behalf that is worth celebrating, even if I don't feel at this particular moment. And I think that's what they're getting at when they say the joy of the Lord is our strength. We are going to celebrate now a baptism. This is one of those places where no matter what's going on in your world, you get the chance to think, wow, these two young girls have come to the place of understanding their faith. And I hope you see this picture clearly If you've never put your trust in Christ, that's one of the reasons why we preach him, because that's where the hope is. That's where the joy is. But the picture of baptism is buried with Christ in our sins in baptism, in his death, raised to walk in newness of life by his resurrection. Old person, new person. Death, life. Watch this video as we move into the celebration of baptism. Thank you for being here and worship with us today. What a wonderful reminder of how Christ has saved us. I hope you have a chance to celebrate with Emily and Julia and get a chance to talk to them. And maybe you've never made that decision. Maybe God's calling you. Joe and Kathy will be up here to pray afterwards. I'll be here if you'd like to think about it. Or maybe you're in a season where it really is hard. You just need someone to pray for you about whatever it is. That's one of the reasons we leave this open at the end of the service. So feel free to come do that. My blessing will come from our text. May the joy The stable, solid, durable joy of the Lord be your strength as you go forth. Thanks for worshiping with us. Go in grace.